We're, we will be in First Thessalonians 2. You can turn there if you'd like. You know, there's a saying that uh, goes, there's uh, no good deed will go unpunished. No good deed will go unpunished. Have you heard that? Um, okay. Hey, have you ever done something where you're full of good intentions, you try and do something nice, and it just spills all over you in all the wrong ways? You think you're doing somebody a favor, you're trying to be thoughtful towards somebody else, and all you get for it is flack or grief or whatever. How do you deal with that when that happens, when your good intentions are misconstrued as being less than noble, when it's your, you are assumed to be self-serving instead of putting the other person's needs above your own? Uh, when Paul and Silas and Timothy were going through Greece on that missionary trip, and they'd been through Philippi, and they get to Thessalonia, they'd had this brief stint there where they share the gospel, and people believe, and a church is formed, and persecution breaks out against Paul and company the same way it had in Philippi. And so Paul is asked to leave by the believers there, you know, basically get out of town, and, and he does. But of course, the persecution for the new church, it didn't stop with his departure. So even though the text doesn't tell us this based on the tone that we see in the, the first half of chapter 2, we assume that this is what's going on that some people in Thessalonia are saying of Paul and maybe Silas and Timothy as well, these guys' motivation is not what it appeared. That when the going got tough, they flew the coop, they bailed out on you. That even though they pretended while they were here to be genuine and sincere and care about your well-being, they really didn't. So when Paul responds to them in this letter, hi John, part of what he does is he tries to explain himself and reconfirm what his real motivations and actions towards them were so that they can continue to hear him and benefit from him. And remember, because he is the key apostle to the Gentiles, if this group of believers writes him off, they've written off the primary means by which God is going to speak to them and help them. So Paul wants to clear up the record, not because he's concerned about his own reputation, this will come up a little bit later, but because he wants to make sure that he still has a hearing with them for their benefit. As we read through this, we'll be in verses 1 through 12. Paul reminds them, and you'll, you'll hear this as we go through, six times that they know something personally or they are witnesses. He's reminding them of things they know in his defense. And also three times that God is witness to the truth of what he's affirming to them here as well. So nine times in this, Paul is saying, you know or God knows that what I'm telling you is the way things really are. I'm not fabricating these things. Uh, this is a little different kind of passage. There's a bunch of terms when we go through, when we explain this a little bit. It may seem a little tedious, but stick with it, please. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, Paul says, You yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, or it wasn't without fruit. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, 
Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brothers, our labor and hardship, working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses and God how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father, his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you, into his own kingdom and glory. What we're going to do now is work through the terms Paul used. Some are negative, some are positive about his motivation and the way he acted towards them. And we're going to start with the negatives. Paul said certain things did not apply to he or Silas and Timothy in their interaction with the Thessalonians. So in verse 3, Paul says they were not motivated by error, impurity, or deceit. They weren't motivated by error. They weren't spreading rumors, or this could also be delusion. Paul says the stuff we talked to you about, it was real. It's the hard facts. It's about a real person named Jesus, a real resurrection in Palestine, just around the sea. The things we shared with you, it's not make-believe, it's not fantasy, it's the real stuff. It's not delusional, it's not error. When he says uh, we weren't with you by way of impurity, uh, unclean would be a more literal uh, rendering of that word. Uh, unclean, and uh, sometimes the more things change, the more they stay the same. You know, if you watch TV today on religious channels as well, you know when you watch some shows, these guys are peddling something. They have, we would say they have impure motives. They have unclean motives. Well, the same thing was going on in Paul's day. And there were people, especially in the Greece area, there were people that were going around selling their wares, their theology, philosophy, way of life, etc., with unclean motives. They were out to get what they could. Oftentimes, and when this term, when the Greek term is used here in the New Testament, it oftentimes has to do with uh, sexual impropriety. So Paul says later in 2 Timothy 3 that there would be church leaders who would use their influence to take advantage of women. Their motives were unclean. Paul says, when we came to you, we did not have impure or unclean motives. That had nothing to do with why we were with you. And then the term he uses for deceit is an interesting one. Um, it's bait. It's bait. So we weren't with you giving you or telling you one thing so that we could get something else from you. The picture here is like a fisherman puts a worm on a hook. He's not really giving the fish the worm, is he? He's, he's using the worm to get the fish. And that's the thought here. It's bait in a trap. If you want to trap an animal, a squirrel or something else, you put bait in a trap. The, the food or the thing they want is there, but it's there so you can get them. Well, Paul says, when we spoke with you, we weren't practicing a bait and switch. We weren't offering you something so that we could get something else from you. That had nothing to do with our motivation. In verse 4, he says that they weren't about pleasing uh, men. Um, the political campaign seemed to last forever. But you know, if you go to, in the political season, if you listen to ads or if you're part of a group that a politician talks to, you know that what they tell you, 
may be different from what they tell another group later. And it's because they want to please each group they're with. So the truth is you don't know what they really believe because you know their views are being tailored to the group they're addressing. They're trying to please men. They're trying to please individual groups. Well, Paul said, when we talked to you, we weren't out to be men pleasers. We weren't telling you something we thought you would want to hear. Uh, We didn't tailor our message to you. It's hard facts and we weren't out to please anyone. Pleasing people didn't motivate what we told you or how we came across. A little bit along that same line, verse 5, he said we didn't use flattering speech. Uh, When we resort to flattery, we're resorting to a carnal method to get somebody to either accept us or give us what we want. The flattery often will win the day for us, but Paul says he didn't resort to flattery. It's sort of an an underhanded, carnal way of getting somebody to like you enough to buy what you're selling or, or at least hear you out. Paul says we didn't practice any use of flattery. Verse 5, he also says uh, greed was not his motivation. And <clears throat> for me, when I read this list, I'm thinking pro- all these apply. They apply to us today too. But greed is huge uh, as far as our culture today. So in Paul's day too, a lot of guys could go along and speak and, and with greed as a motive, they could make a good living on the preaching circuit, on the speaking circuit. And you know today, if you look at the Christian church, I'm thinking primarily in America, though the same thing is true perhaps to lesser degree other, other places. Um, I think greed is a huge motivation for Christian leaders and Christian ministries in the United States. I have absolutely no biblical defense for pastor teachers living in multi-million dollar houses, flying private multi-million dollar jets, and living the lifestyles of the rich and famous on the givings from the church. And you can turn on the television any Sunday and you can see them. Now, in their defense, at least on the level of being consistent, many of these people preach a doctrine that I don't think is biblical, but the health and wealth gospel that God wants you to be healthy. His will is is always perfect health for your body, and that he wants you to be wealthy. So at least on the level of consistency, these are the folks generally who preach that message. So they're being consistent. They're living the life they call you to. You know, the problem is most of those people giving out the money that make them wealthy, they don't live that lifestyle. Uh, So greed, Paul says when we are with you, greed was not a motivation. And I think this is something we've really got to be careful of, especially in our culture today. Even with the stock market down, and we've lost, if you're invested, you've probably lost 30% of your wealth, whatever that looked like before. It doesn't look the same today, you know, in the last several months. Um, We are a wealthy, wealthy people in a wealthy, wealthy nation. And it's easy when you've got a lot of something to simply want more. And so greed, Paul says, not his key motivation, but I think for us on an application level, this is something we have to be particularly careful about. Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, 6 to 8, godliness is a means of gain when accompanied by contentment. He said this, by the way, to Christian leaders. And if we have food and covering with these, we'll be content. In other words, if we have just the basic necessities of life, we're good to go. We're good to go. This was not the mentality of others that Paul knew were preaching in his day. It's certainly not the motivation of many people preaching in our own. Verse 6, he also says we were not glory seekers. I, I find this funny. Um, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.13, the apostles, among which he is one, were considered the dregs of society in his day. So it's as if he's trying to counter the charges made against him in Thessalonica. 
And some of the people are saying they're just in this for the glory. You know, uh, probably a few people aside, you talk to people who labor in local churches and tell them they're in it for the glory. It's laughable. Give me a break. It's laughable. It's, it's almost all hard work, rejection, disappointment. You know, welcome to church leadership. There you go. Uh, so they're like, Paul's in it for the glory. Right. You know, uh-huh, right. He's not a glory seeker, he says. And then in verse 6, he says he didn't assert his authority. On one hand, he said in verse 5, we're not greedy. We weren't with you to get something out of you. In verse 6, he says, we didn't even use the right we would have had to be supported by you while we were there. If you read 1 Corinthians 9, you know that Paul says God meant those who gave their life to proclaiming the gospel to get their living from that word. So he compares it to an ox threshing out seed and that the ox would eat while he's threshing. Paul says that's an illustration in the Old Testament that those who proclaim the gospel would routinely be supported by people whom they proclaim the gospel to. But Paul said in Thessalonica he did not make use of that right. He didn't take anything from these folks. Nor uh, in the Corinthian church, you'll see the same thing. He never accepted funds from the Corinthians either. And it wasn't because he couldn't or shouldn't have, but I think it was because when he looked at both groups, he knew that if he took anything financial from them, he, he would automatically be assumed to be doing it for the money. So he didn't accept any support from them. And at times he says to one group, I robbed other churches, meaning other churches supported me in other cities, while I was here serving you. But he took nothing from this church. He was not supported from them while he was there, even though by any biblical or godly guideline he could have, and in other places and times did. So Paul says on the negative side, uh, no unclean motives, no duplicity, no deception, no, no bait and switch. He said they weren't about being popular or using flattery, and he wasn't out to make a quick buck. So then that leaves us wondering, okay, negatives aside, Paul, what was your motivation? What did that look like? Going back to verse 2, he starts by saying that when they shared the gospel with them, they had shared it in boldness. Uh, After we'd already suffered and been mistreated, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. You know, oftentimes Christians are perceived as uh, wimps, maybe. Um, Socially, culturally backward, sort of uh, less than strong or uh, courageous or whatever. You know, Paul had just come from a city in which he'd been beaten, locked in jail, in the stocks. And what's he do when he gets out? He goes to the next city willing to put up with more of the same. So when he said with boldness, they know what he just endured in Philippi. And he said, I was willing to to risk more of the same so I could come and talk to you. And if you read the history of the early church, if you read something like Fox's Book of Martyrs, or if you think of Christians in oppressed portions of the world today, I'm thinking Indonesia, parts of China, parts of Africa, and the Middle East, uh, cowardly is not a term that describes the early church or Christians living in these parts of the world today. Uh, bold and courageous. And this is something, uh, oftentimes uh, Christians in our culture, we want to be thought of as nice. So we, we intentionally don't say things that might offend other people. And I think at some level that's cowardly. 
We simply don't say something because we might be rejected. Someone else might be uncomfortable. I think it's the opposite of what Paul's saying here. By the way, in saying this, I don't mean that we're supposed to be obnoxious or smelly or uh, hard to get along with in ways that aren't necessary. I simply mean, Paul says in Ephesians, speaking the truth in love. Many times, most Christians I know are afraid to speak the truth in love. They lack courage. Paul said, we were courageous. We had boldness when we came and spoke to you. He said in verse 4, we spoke to please God, knowing that it was God who would judge what they said and and how they said it and what they did. And you know, this alone, um, if you think of your life as kind of being videotaped or watched by the moment by God in heaven, it's a great uh, hedge for you to do the right thing, say the right thing or do things for the right reason. God's watching or the videotape's going to play, or, or whatever that looks like to you. But Paul said, we spoke to please God because we know God is the one that will judge us. So one day I've got to give account to God so I can't hedge my words. I can't afford to because I'm going to stand before Christ and he'll say, why did you say that? I can tell you for myself, in some difficult times I faced in the past, sleepless nights, embattled days, this alone is what kept me doing the right thing. When I knew I will give account to Christ, Jesus is going to look me eye to eye and say, why did you do that? I couldn't afford not to do what I knew was right because I knew I'm going to see him face to face. He's going to hold me accountable. Well, that's how Paul spoke. He said, I can't afford to speak in a way to please you. That can't be my goal. I speak in a way to please God, knowing God is the one that will judge me. Uh, This is an emotional passage too. Uh, terms of emotion, you get into verse 7. I don't know many guys who would talk this way. Paul says, I was gentle like a nursing mother towards you. (laughs) We've got nursing mothers in our midst. This is not a bad thing. But for a guy to say, I'm like a nursing mother, it's not the way most guys would would like to uh, define ourselves. It doesn't sound very masculine. But the thought was, the same kind of emotional, tender, thoughtful care that a mother has for a defenseless child, that's the kind of thoughtfulness or care or emotional commitment we've had towards you. This emotional commitment and care, like a mother with a child, a baby, a nursing infant, that's the same kind of heart or emotion, Paul says, we had to you. Not only not duplicitous, but more like a mother cares for her children. That's the way we felt. That's the way we feel towards you. Think of two. uh, Jesus compares himself to a shepherd. Uh, In the New Testament, you see that same thought. In the Old, in fact, there's a passage in Isaiah. I can't remember the the, uh, reference where God says that he'll lead people as if they were uh, uh, nursing ewes. Uh, like a sheep that had just had little ones. He would take that kind of consideration a shepherd would with a, a lamb that needed additional care. Well, that's the same thing Paul's saying here. A gentle like a nursing mother. Uh, verse 8, he also says, fond affection that resulted in personal commitment. Um, you know, sometimes in my life, I, I want to do the right thing. And uh, so sometimes I find myself doing the right thing Uh, Not because I'm emotionally committed to it, but because it's the right thing. And my emotions really aren't there. And you know, that's okay. So if that's what you've got, do the right thing. 
even if your emotions aren't there. That's still, that's okay. But better than that is doing the right thing and your emotions are there. So Paul says, we've got a fond affection for you that makes us feel attached to you, committed to you. Have you ever given somebody a ride or done something for someone just because you had to, sort of, but you really didn't want to be with them? Well, Paul says he goes beyond just doing the right thing by them to emotionally being committed to them and attached to them, seeing beyond someone's unloveliness to actually embracing them emotionally. This is a good thing. That's what Paul did. He also says in verse 9 that they were hard working in their midst. Sometimes in Paul's ministry, uh, he was bivocational. He was doing two jobs at the same time. So he had a day job and he had a night job. And his vocation, um, most Jews, even the, even the rabbis, had a trade. And this was, this was normal in Jewish life. Paul's was making tents. So we know it sometimes in his ministry, he wasn't being supported by any churches. He was paying his own way by working days at the tent shop. And that's apparently what he did here. He worked days to support himself, and then he worked for them at nights. So he said they know he was hard working. It was extra work, it was draining, but he was willing to do that for their sake. This would be like a a father who's working two or three jobs to provide for his children. It's not that he wants to work two or three jobs, but that's what it takes to take care of his family. Well, Paul says that's the way he worked while he was with them. He also says in verse 9 that when he was with them, he proclaimed the gospel. And this probably means two things. It means that he told them what God wanted them to hear. It's God's gospel. It's the message about Christ, but it's God's message to them. It's not his. But it also means that he cared enough about them to give them the the most valuable thing that anyone can give someone else, which is the message of redemption or salvation. You know, everything on the earth is going to burn up. Everything here is limited to time and space. It's all over one day. What lasts through eternity? People do. All of us have an eternal destiny. Paul says, I cared enough about you to share the gospel, not my message, but God's. Sorry, I, I told you this would be a little tedious. We're almost done. Uh, Verse 10, he says, we were devout, upright, and blameless. Devout just means holy. We were upright, it means righteous. The same word when we're declared righteous before God. Paul says, we were righteous in our dealings with you and blameless. There was no cause by which you could or should have blamed us. That's what our motivation looked like, blameless. And then verse 11, Paul said, we had paternal care in the way of exhorting, encouraging, and imploring you. So on one hand, he says, we're like a mother. We felt like mothers towards you. This is this emotional care. But he also says, but we were also like a father. We were exhorting and pushing you, as it were, getting you into action, moving you along. Uh, Motherly on one hand towards this emotional care. Fatherly, paternal towards getting you to do the right things to grow up. So both like a mother and a father. Now, verse 12, Paul tells you, tells us, tells them the reason why they were with them and what motivated everything they did and said. And it's that, sorry, as I find my verse here, verse 12, he said, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And if you notice the cause Everything Paul's about, in verse 12, Paul is not mentioned. 
You, meaning the Thessalonians, and God. So Paul says our ministry to you was to honor Christ and serve your best interest. There was nothing in this for us. Nothing directly in this for us. What we wanted to do was to help you get where God wants you to be. So it's as if Paul says you've been playing in the minor leagues, now you're in the major leagues, and we want you to play like a major leaguer. Or you've lived life as a pauper, but now you're a child of the king, you're living in the royal palace, and your dress, as it were, your appearance, your demeanor, should reflect this high calling you now enjoy. So at the end of the day, Paul said we were with you so that God would be honored and your best interests would be advanced. It had nothing to do with Paul's own direct benefit, nothing at all. Close with an illustration. Uh, in 1942, uh, Ni To Sheng, a Chinese Christian, uh, entered his brother George's chemical business called the Chinese Biological and Chemical Laboratories to help George run and develop it. Uh, Ni To Sheng looked at his brother's business and knew his brother was a chemist, was good at, at chemistry, but not at sales and marketing and development. And he looked at the business and knew that he could probably help brother George uh, increase sales and make this company profitable. So Ni To Sheng went to work. He found ways to run the company's drugs past the occupying Japanese army to the areas in China where their markets were. And sure enough, the, the business made money. It, it actually did quite well. They made great profits. And that's sort of where the, where the trouble began. Because uh, Ni To Sheng was known as Watchman Ni, and he had been a full-time pastor and teacher in China, actually for decades at this point. So Watchman Ni leaves full-time service to run a business part-time. And because of this, uh, he actually uh, was put out of leadership in his local church. Uh, he helped found the church. He discipled most of the people in it. He was not allowed to teach in his local church. And basically, everyone assumed the worst about him. People who knew him best assumed the worst. And the thought was this. You were a full-time missionary pastor, and you've taken your hand off the plow, and you're no longer worthy of the kingdom. You can't teach in our church anymore. And you start asking yourself the question, as they did at the time, why did he leave full-time service to go run this company? You know, was he after a more lavish lifestyle? He had lived a hard and frugal life, and his wife had all along. Maybe they're just tired and they want a better life. You know, is that what it was about? Well, his lifestyle didn't change at all. It was frugal and simple as it always had been. The reason he left full-time ministry was because the Chinese church and pastors during World War II, they were cash-strapped. So Watchman Nee went to work to support the churches and the brothers who rejected him as a leader. And literally, he was supporting men who were accusing him of sinfulness. He was financially paying their way. And he never told them. As a youth, there had been an important Christian in his life who had said, when these things come your way, you don't worry about it, you let God take care of it. And because he knew, he had prayed about this for a long time before he took this step. Uh, um, he was convinced that God had called him to this in order to serve the church. 
And so he was willing to take the hits because he believed he was fulfilling God's call on his life. God was honored. And their best interest was advanced. That is, these guys who were supported by the church, they were supported because Watchman Nee was funding the churches and funding these individual leaders. So at the end of the day, everything he did was for someone else's benefit. But when they looked at him and his life, they assumed the worst. But he goes on doing the things he knew God had called him to. And he ended his life 20 years in a Chinese concentration camp where he died in 1972. Uh, never was, uh, in the lives of those churches and men, never was vindicated. But, you know, just like Paul, he, I think he said this, I'm, I'm letting God, I'm reserving the day of judgment for God's judgment, not man's. So this allowed him to do what he felt God wanted him to do, even though it was misread by everyone around him. Ask yourself, what motivates you in the service you have, in the things you do, in the people you serve, or the things you don't do? What motivates you in your life on this earth? Is it your own glory? By the way, I tend to think we think our motivations are more godly or higher typically than they are. So these are great questions for us, probing questions about motivations. Uh, are we serving our own ends when we're serving others? Are we, are we serving others because we're getting something out of it? Now, sometimes we do, and that's fine. I don't mean to say we, we never benefit from the ways we serve others, even if we feel good. You know, if you serve others, you feel good. This is not a bad thing. But what happens if the people you're serving turn on you? How do you feel then? And are you willing to keep serving them? if they don't appreciate your efforts. You know, uh, parents typically know something about this. Are you willing to look beyond your child's rejection for their greater good, for instance? In other words, can you look past somebody writing you off and still continue to do them good because you're willing to look past that short-term rejection because you know that means something of greater value for them long-term. Can you live with that? Are you willing to? Or are our egos so easily bruised that if we're rejected a little bit, we just say, well, I'm done with you. And I, I'm afraid the second is probably where most of us live. In fact, think of this. Lord willing, not true of anyone here. People are often willing to leave a church because their feelings are offended. Do you know that's the... Teaching's not quite what it should have been on Sunday morning. That guy gave me an ugly look or, or whatever. The nursery's not run the way I want. It goes on and on. I'm thinking, give me a break. Grow up. We're kids. If, it's, if we don't get this direct benefit, we say, well, I'm done with that. <laughs> it's, can you imagine God looking down from heaven? God who gives His Son for our sins people who, who aren't seeking God. God gives a son for us and we look at each other and we don't quite get it right and we turn our nose up and go someplace else. Where, frankly, the people are going to be just like the ones we left. Somebody asked Abraham Lincoln one, one time, headed to a town, they say, what are the people like in that town? Lincoln says, oh, they're probably just like the people in the town you just left. Meaning, it's you. <laughs> You're the one. You know, the church is so immature. And by the way, you'll see this in this epistle in Thessalonians. Paul knew this was an immature group, which is why he's willing to bend over backwards and say, guys, there's nothing in this for me. This is about honoring God and your benefit. 
So he'll tell them throughout this thing, you're doing well in some things, but you can improve. You can improve, and improvement is in your best interest. So when we're serving others, when we're at work, when we're at school, if you're offended, what do you do with that? Are you willing to go on and continue serving someone else because it's in their best interest, whether or not you're misunderstood or understood or appreciated the way you think you should be? Rudyard Kipling had great uh, sage advice in his poem, If, there's one stanza I'll read you from it. This is one I quote to my girls regularly. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, Paul did here, but make allowance for their doubting too, reassess, am I real, what's my real motivation and goal? If you can wait and not be tired by waiting or being lied about, people are lying about you, don't deal in lies, you don't go there. Or being hated, don't give way to hating and yet don't look too good nor talk too wise. This is great stuff. We can preach this. This will work. If. This is where we're at. This is, what, this is the kind of stuff we need to take stock of. People are blaming you and it's not your fault. Okay. Go on. People don't appreciate me for what I do or why I do it. Okay. Yes. Your point. What's the deal? Are we willing to serve others even when they blame us and misunderstand us? Will we serve at our own expense because it honors Christ and it is in another person's best interest for us to do so? Or are we going to pick up our marbles and find another game when someone doesn't treat us the way we think we should be treated? That's what this gets down to. It's motivation. And again, in context here, Paul didn't care if they understood him about being understood. But he knew if they wrote him off, they wouldn't listen to him. And he's God's apostle. And if they write off God's apostle, they're going to write off God's message to them. And Paul's got another letter to write to them after this one. So this was all about Paul honoring Christ and doing what was in their best interest. Jesus, the scripture says, Jesus came to be the servant of all and left us an example to do the same. And sometimes it means taking our licks, getting hit, uh, beat up a little bit, and going on anyway. And that's Christian maturity, and that's what we're called to. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, I am struck by uh, how routinely we are so carnal and so immature, so unlike Christ. Lord, I know your Spirit's work in each of us is to make us more and more after the image of your Son, to to uniquely weld the personality traits and strengths that you've given each one of us to the character of Christ. And Lord, I pray that we're cooperative in that process and probing, searching passages like this that make us rethink our own motivations and willingness to be used by you, Lord. They are uh, difficult on one hand and healthy on the other. Um, I pray that you don't allow us to get out from underneath this too too readily before you've helped us uncover areas in our life in which we need more of your grace and help and transformation. And Lord, make us folks that you can use 
no matter the short-term response, so that we honor you now and so that when we see you face-to-face, you can say, well done, good job. In Jesus' name, amen.